This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Your chance to catch up on real life stories and expert guests or listen again. And we're asking on today's show, who cheats more, men or women? Clinical psychologist Dr. Thryer and Manny, the founder of Mentality Podcast, discussed why people cheat on their partners and who is often coming clean about doing the dirty. As part of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, chatting to Dr. Rita from King's College Hospital and cancer survivor Zainab. Is he going through a midlife crisis or is it the male menopause, a.k.a. andropause? Discussing this with two experts live in the studio and the founders of Savor Experience talking about the growth of the wellness industry. What is trending in wellness here in Dubai? Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're talking infidelity this hour. Adam Levine, Maroon 5's lead man, the latest celebrity accused of being unfaithful. Not the only one, though. We've heard Jay-Z talking openly about being unfaithful. Kevin Hart cheated on his wife when he was pregnant. But it's not just men. No, no, no. Well-known women and those who walk among us. Uh, even family and friends. But why do people cheat? We're talking motivations this hour. And also on hand to help you too. Delighted to be joined live in the studio. And I love having them in the studio. Dr. Thryer, uh, clinical psychologist from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And we've got Manny Giorno as well, joining us as we talk about mentality. Dr. Thryer, I put up a little poll earlier saying, would you forgive your partner if they cheated? Any guesses of the yes-no ratio? Well, I would, um, if you could tell the gender, I would probably oh, say that men have a little bit more difficulty in forgiving their partner when they cheat, whereas women will tend to forgive, especially if children are involved. Oh, that's interesting. Manny, you're nodding along. What would your take be on this? I, I, I generally agree. I think men are... The, the, the vivid stories that we tell ourselves mm-hmm. about what our significant others do when they cheat, I think, uh, scare us thereafter. So That's I would interesting. agree. That's really interesting. Now, the, the studies are really interesting because you're never really going to get to the bottom of this. But uh, a study talked about what people thought constituted cheating. So not mm-hmm. revealing their own behaviours, but a thousand people polled on what they thought cheating meant. So majority respondents, 71 to 76% said that physical sexual contact with someone outside of the relationship would meet that threshold. Slimmer majority said maintaining an online dating profile, 63%, or sending flirtatious messages to someone else, 51%, should always be considered cheating. Where do your boundaries lie, Manny? I think personally, um, cheating starts in the mind. So the minute you look at someone and start entertaining the idea of, okay, this can go further than just... Uh, fleeting glance mm. I think you're you're in danger of potentially doing something so, you shouldn't so hang on hang on is a little day would you count a little daydream as cheating I mean everyone has fantasies right <laughs> <For> you <laughs> but when you start thinking about yeah. logistics yeah, and I, you know kind of that, turning that fantasy into a you know how could this play out as a reality yeah logistics yes but I think um, fantasizing 
consecutively like over mm. and over and over again um, can constitute because the brain is a powerful thing the more you think about something the more real it becomes mm-hmm. um, so you have to draw the line somewhere Thraya is this something that couples come to you with one might consider a, a behaviour cheating and the other one is indignant that it's not of course because like you said the definition of cheating is very different for many people so essentially when we talk about infidelity it's really a matter of betrayal so it's where the, the, the line is, is basically on the cross of expectations. Mm. So if your partner is okay with you even fantasizing and talking about it and being open about it, then that's one thing. But when you start hiding things from your mm-hmm. partner, then really that's when we start to talk about this idea of infidelity. And this could even be platonic friendships. Mm-hmm. There are many people that come and talk to me, especially from different cultures, that don't find it okay that, the op- that they have friendships of the opposite sex. And they would be destroyed to just know that their partner has, a f- uh, like, let's say, a female or a male. So the opposite sex friend that is purely platonic. That's what I was going to ask you in terms of the lens that we grow up in, you know, our family framework, the culture we grow up. You know, what impact does that have on our definition of infidelity? It has a very big impact. So essentially, when we think about what we've really talked about um, when it comes to infidelity, we look at cheating, cheating physically and physically means with intimacy. And that's usually because of how we are socialized and culturally think uh, we think about the religious aspect of marriage. Mm-hmm. And so with that, it comes this idea that that sec- the, the sexual intimacy, the all of that relationship must remain in the marriage alone. And so that has always been the benchmark for infidelity. But in reality, the emotional aspect that we don't really talk about is so significant. And actually, women are more significantly, significantly affected by emotional cheating of their men than men are by emotional cheating of their women. I don't know what would be worse. And I'm, I'm, something we're hearing a lot of at the minute is, well, marriage is an out-of-date concept. This is, it's not realistic mm-hmm. to expect a man to, to be faithful. Is this something you've heard, read about, witnessed in the community, Manny? I think in the community, yes. Um, more, it's, it's not just amongst men. I think generally there is this um, ideology of disposable relationships nowadays um, and cancel culture. So mm-hmm. people are generally tending to get with someone for a period of time that serves them and then they'll move on. Um, I personally, you know, don't believe in that. I think marriage is is a concept that's worth upholding. I'm married, but... Um, yeah, it is something that we're seeing a lot more of. That's a really interesting point about disposable relationships. And should we bring the apps into this? You know, <laughs> when you think about how you know easy it is to meet someone, create a, an instant you know connection, whether it's real or perceived to be real, you know, you can you can delete someone, you can block someone, you can go someone. Whereas, I guess historically when you had a relationship it was probably because you'd met through your families maybe you Mm -hmm. were neighbors there was this kind of community element around you where you'd be more accountable in your behavior would you looking kind of looking through relationship and looking at you know your time even as a clinical psychologist do you feel like modern day problems are somewhat different I I would say it depends on where the person lives. So the further you are away from your community, from your family, from your social structure, the more likely you are to think of the disposable relationship. So expats are in a bit of bother. Just a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, And unfortunately, you know, when we live in a city where there's so many expats, then that becomes the idea. The idea is that, okay, I don't need to commit to one person because I have so many options. And so why commit to one? And unfortunately, this is what happens. And there's now a question that we've, we are now asking people that we never asked before. Are we exclusive? Mm. 
defining the relationship. It's funny exactly. you say that. We, when, when I lived in New York, that was a thing. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you Americans date someone, do this. Yeah, you date someone until you actually ask them, are you exclusive? Mm-hmm. It's not been a thing anywhere else. In, no, in the UK, you, you, like, you, you, know, you might go to the pub with someone and then you might move in with someone and then you're like, oh, we appear to be getting married. We've never actually discussed our relationship or what this means. Because, you know, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. But yeah, those kind of boundaries, those expectations, as mm-hmm. you said, are really crucial. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diet. Diagnosis. Healthy Habits on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Joining me live in the studio this afternoon is Manny DiGiorno from the Mentality Podcast and clinical psychologist Dr. Thryer from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. And we're having a look at infidelity. And Thryer, you deal an awful lot with couples in crisis. Mm-hmm. Can I ask how busy is your calendar right now? <laughs> I'm actually fully booked, but not just because of couples, but in general, yes. Because it's it's quite interesting to see how, especially after the summer, there have been a lot of people that have identified how lonely that they've been feeling, but also how many couples have experienced a lot of difficulties over the summer spending so much time together, especially mm-hmm. post-COVID. We had like some time where we were apart and we were kind of doing our own thing. And then the summer brings people back together. And so now it's unfortunately starting to split them apart. And I think for a lot of people, it's a lot of women you know, we've got this friendship group that we can talk things through. I'm feeling like this. You know, what is this normal? What are you finding in your relationship? And there's an element of comfort, you know, a bit of kind of misery loves company if everyone else having a bit of a tough time. Or there's an idea of being supported. And I'm curious, Manny, you know, when it comes to the the men, the men in our lives, I'd, I'd love you to kind of speak to the point of where where are men getting that support from if anywhere yeah i think then there aren't many spaces which is why mentality was formed there aren't many spaces um and there aren't many women that can hold space for a man to come and speak to them mm-hmm. and so in essence what you're finding is men are bottling things up and telling everyone that they're fine and then will go and kind of destroy themselves either by you know finding vices in in women in drugs in um you know whatever that escape is whatever it is work Uh, sometimes Mm. which 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 is you know a a very pertinent um point i i I know i used to do it i'd stay in work 17 18 hour days to escape what was going on at home because it was just a a dark hole Mm. um not with my wife at the moment although she's gonna kill me well qualified thank you um but yeah it's you know there aren't many spaces and so you know when we did form mentality it was it was on the back of not finding spaces where we could go and be vulnerable where mm-hmm. we can you know go and check in where we can go and talk to people and there weren't there weren't any communities and in, in total in total honesty like less than 24 hours ago when my husband said to me last night you haven't even asked me how my day was and i was like i know but i've been doing this and i've been doing <laughs> that and he you know the thing about my husband and i think an awful lot of men is he's incredibly self-sufficient he doesn't ask for advice. He doesn't ask for support. So I assume that he doesn't really need it. And he totally called me out on it last night. And I was like, oh, you're, you're so right. So I guess we just need to keep on asking, even if we're going to be shut down every so often. Asking and listening. I think that's, that's the key thing. Um, asking is one point. But sometimes you ask and carry on doing stuff. Just stop for a moment mm-hmm. and listen. And actually listen beyond the words that are coming out of that, his mouth. Let's go to the text line, 4001, if you want to have your say. Um, We're talking about infidelity this hour, and T is saying, um, when do you advise marriage counselling after someone is unfaithful, and when is it a waste of time? Well, I advise 
for marriage counseling right after the um, affair or, or the cheating has been uh, exposed. So right after, because normally there's a lot of anger there and some really horrible things can be said. So it's, it's important to get somebody that can contain all the emotions that are happening in that moment. I wouldn't necessarily say that um, w- there's no point to it, but I will say that if one person has completely checked out, then a- any marital therapy, regardless when um, you come in, it's it's kind of not destined you, for success. You both success. need to be in the room or yeah. you both need to want to be in the room with the same goal because maybe if right. one person has checked out, is there an argument for even being in the room to help you to steal Gwyneth and Chris's phrase, you know, a bit of conscious uncoupling to mm-hmm. the kind of like, how are we going to navigate a separation where there is so much anger and hatred and resentment, especially when there's kids involved? Of course. So I guess waste of time depends on what that goal is. If it's staying together or if it's separating the best you can. And staying together for the right reasons. Yeah. Most people, what they try to do is go back to their normal. So go. I want, let's go back to the way we were. But no, the way you were has also contributed significantly to where you are today. So it's about recognizing that there's a death to the marriage before, mm-hmm. and now we're remarrying each other on different conditions and different expectations. I think to that point, I'm, I'm an advocate of starting marriage counseling before you even get married. And the reason being is... Um, if you leave it to the point where something's happened to now start marriage and counseling, then the problem's already there. Mm-hmm. But if we can tackle the problem early on, i.e. find out what it, what the differences between the two of us are and build towards mm-hmm. actually having a common a view of life going ahead, then you shouldn't really, I mean, I say you shouldn't because anything can happen, but you shouldn't really face some like, of these big like issues. Like maintaining a car. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Always there with analogies. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. When Maroon 5 lead singer Adam Levine admitted to sending flirty messages to other women, he acknowledged he'd crossed the line but insisted he hadn't cheated on his partner. Other disagreed. Social media attacked him. So clearly infidelity means different things to different people. So what do we know about why people cheat? Who out of the genders cheats more often? And is there any coming back from it? I will use any excuse to quote Esther Perel, who said, when marriage was an economic arrangement, infidelity threatened our economic security. Today, Marriage is a romantic arrangement and infidelity threatens our emotional security. Speaking to that point of things have changed. Joined now by Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic and Manny Dijono. He is the founder of the Mentality Podcast. So Thraya, as we acknowledged earlier, data very hard to come by on this topic uh, because people aren't very honest about being dishonest. But do we know much about Male versus female, who cheats more? Well, what we know is who cheats more in different ways. Go on. So men tend to cheat more physically, whereas women tend to cheat more emotionally. This is not to say that either sex doesn't, you know. Yes, but um, in terms of overall cheating, they tend to be very similar. Oh, I'm surprised. Manny does not look surprised. I'm not at all. (laughs) I think um, I think both sexes cheat because you need both sexes to cheat. Takes two to tango. That's it. Do you think happy people cheat, Manny? I believe so. I've seen happy people cheat. I think um, to Dr. Thorea's point, um, men, even when they're happy, tend to be opportunists. And so if the opportunity presents itself, it's mostly likely that a man will cheat. That being said, I've seen vice versa also. 
Um, I just think women hide it a lot better. Are we naturally more deceptive or better at lying, Thraya? We are definitely better at lying. <laughs> we are definitely better because we learn at a very young age. Mm, that's true. Yes. We, we mold and mask. We manipulate. And we, we, we learn to manipulate. <gasps> Believe me, as the mother of a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, exactly. two daughters, I'm manipulated. <laughs> Daily. Um, so what do we know about motivations? And this is going to obviously vary across, you know, ages, cultures, generations, genders. But what are some of the main motivations that have been established for why people would stray? I would stray, s- sorry, sorry. Stray sounds like it's an accident. <laughs> <laughs> Just wandered <laughs> off the path. Right. Found myself here. Let's see why people are unfaithful. Well, what we find is the number one reason is lack of proper communication. So when a, when a couple is not communicating effectively, then they are not connecting effectively. And so essentially that means there's an emotional disconnect between the two, but also a sexual disconnect between the two. Mm-hmm. Also, we're talking about physical distance. So when there's a lot of travel between two individuals or a lot of distance between two individuals, it can also lead to something like that. When there's a feel of not enough give and take. So if one partner feels like they're doing more than the other partner is doing, definitely it leads to almost this imbalance in the relationship. When there's um, a difficulty in feeling understood or validated by the other partner, when you're feeling neglected by the other partner. Mm -hmm. So those tend to be the most significant reasons why people cheat. Of course, there is the opportunistic cheating as well, but more often than not, those tend to be the main reasons. I've just had a really fascinating question. And Manny, I'm keen to get your take on this. <laughs> I don't know how to say this. Why do you think men cheat on extremely beautiful women? I'm thinking like Emily Ratajkowski. <laughs> <laughs> um, because if she's getting cheated on, I mean, you know, what hope are the rest of us got? What I would say, m- maybe she's boring. Maybe she's got a body odor problem. We, <laughs> don't, we don't know. <laughs> I think. I think society looks at the beauty of of someone and says okay well she shouldn't be cheated on but i think it goes far beyond that um dr thorea made a point about not being understood or there being imbalances whether it be sexually or through communication and some and most of the time that's what it is she may be beautiful on the outside but can she um you know sustain a relationship and, and uphold that consistent communication are there differences in kinks are there differences in in the way that they like to do things or not have love their communi- languages this mm-hmm. is it mm. um so yeah got a text i might get in trouble for reading this um show me a beautiful woman and i'll show you a man who's tired of sleeping with her <laughs> <laughs> now, i'm not reading out the name that uh, that read that one what, what what's your take on that because you know, this is one of the things, oh my goodness, Adam Levine's cheated on a Victoria's Secret model, right. you know. Right. Well, I mean, we fall in love with what we see, but I mean, essentially to stay in love, it goes way beyond what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And so, the and this is one of the most difficult things when it comes to um, couples counseling after cheating is recognizing that both parties at mostly have a responsibility for how, why the cheating happened. Absolutely agree. And I think a lot of people like, well, you know, he did the dirty. She, she right. was the one that, you know, I am the victim in this situation. Right. Choosing to ignore what happened for weeks, months, mm-hmm. years leading up to that point. And, you know, infidelity, there's a theory about it's a symptom of something wrong in a relationship. Exactly. And, so, and, and I have seen it in my practice where sometimes relationships actually get better after cheating happens because the couple actually wakes up to what the nature and the status of the relationship was mm-hmm. and they start to adjust and change and really look at each other and see each other and take care of each other. So I don't believe that it's it's a matter of one person's fault. I think both parties are responsible 
survival. And also, just as an added fact, I think it's beautiful how we completely ignore the third party's responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. So all of these women that are, are helping Adam Levine cheat on his wife, nobody says anything to them. Mm-hmm. Nobody's, you know, it's opportunistic. You know, they should, you know, he's reaching out. No, for us as humans to collectively work as a society and a community we need to care about each other even if we don't know each other social contracts right i'm going to try and squeeze in a couple of messages no name on this message um this came through on social media actually saying i'm a female i've been married 10 years um and my husband spends more time on work than he does on his marriage no matter how hard i've tried to show him affection or spend time with him i get very little back in return the point where is if i I was a different moral compass i could easily look elsewhere for attraction so i do understand why some people would be unfaithful and another non-investor saying i cheated on my husband early in our relationship 15 years ago and he never found out I feel guilty every day and long to tell him, but I think it would ruin everything, even though we have built a happy, loving family. Is there anything to be gained by telling him now, or is that just me being selfish? It was a one-off thing that I regret deeply. I mean, I am a, a strong encourager of open communication in a relationship. However, in this particular case, this is something that happened 15 years ago, and you've been able to be remorseful and work on the relationship and really not make up for it, but treat the relationship for what it deserves to mm-hmm. be treated as. And by telling him, you're really just satisfying your own uh, anxieties and your own discomfort. And, and I think it's, yeah. and yeah, and your own guilt. So I, I don't think you're really gaining anything other than almost like a, a, a self-comfort. Manny, would you want to know? No. I don't um, think I would I think, I think, as I mentioned earlier, there are horrors and, and thought processes that men go through that really destroy us as men. As much as we're not as emotional as women, I think as men, once we found out that our partner has cheated, it's, it's destructive because you start building on that and you start almost picturing mm-hmm. the, the scenario. Of course, that's so, inevitable. No, I wouldn't want to know. I don't think I really don't think I would either. Message here, no name, saying humans are wired not to be monogamous. It's biology, and those who say otherwise are hypocrites. I, I agree. Unfortunately, I kind of agree. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time answering this question without opening up a completely different can, can of words. Can I just say that the two married people in the room <laughs> agree, agreed, with this, agreed with this statement? No, I- That's not to say it can't be done, but when we look at kind of base needs i think it is kind of you know you're 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 fighting you're fighting some pretty pretty hardwired behaviors there to bring some clarity to it i agree that we're we're meant to be polygamous however it's a choice to be monogamous and so once you've made that choice stick by it let's let's talk there about rebuilding that trust and this is the last message we've got time for let's sit in last question saying um, I was cheated on my husband and years later I don't understand why I do on the surface I was away for a year he was lonely she was there he was selfish but it doesn't understand why I don't know how to stop feeling sad if I leave I doubt I'll stop feeling sad then either I can't talk to him anymore my pain is always hijacked by his shame and sense of inadequacy can you ever rebuild the trust you can definitely build retrust in a relationship as long as you're developing some form of open communication, taking responsibility for what happened, but also not punishing the partner that cheated. Because if you want to rebuild the relationship, you really have to both be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And that also involves you forgiving, not just him, but yourself. Forgiving yourself for what happened, forgiving him for what happened, and then moving forward in the relationship. And I would say that more than anything, you need to understand that for the relationship to work, you have to want to be in this relationship and don't want to just exist for the sake of existing in the relationship. Well said indeed.
Dr. Thryer, as I said, your calendar for marriage counselling is jam packaroonied right now. But if people do want to reach out to you, where can you be found? I can be found at the clinic, um, so either by phone or by, by email. Human Relations Institute and Clinic, some great resources online as well. And Manny, for any men out there who are looking to find a community, looking to find resources, that sense of connection, how can people listen to you and find out more about you? Sure, we have, um, so they can follow us on Instagram the men underscore tality pod um we have youtube podcast that goes out every two weeks or if they're looking for a community we have bi-weekly uh meetings men's circles that happen at the mac hills community center called brotherhood dxb which is our community arm and they can always sign up and come over to there if you want details of that please do not hesitate to get in touch we'd love to introduce you to the mentality team guys it's been an absolute pleasure an enlightening conversation one i sincerely hope my husband didn't listen to um and we will catch up with you guys very soon indeed this content is for informational purposes only if you would like to seek medical treatment please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalized advice and diagnosis Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It is, of course, October, and throughout this month, we're marking Breast Cancer Awareness Month all over the region and beyond. There are events, workshops, talks, screenings, and more to bring more education, knowledge, empowerment to breast cancer. It is the most commonly occurring cancer in women and the most common cancer overall. In 2020, there were more than 2.6 million new cases worldwide, and it has said that one in eight women will develop breast cancer at some stage in their life. So we're having a special clinic this hour and we'll be continuing this conversation throughout the course of the month. Joining us now is breast, a coloplastic surgeon from King's College Hospital, Dr. Rita Saka. And we're going to be speaking to later a patient who has survived breast cancer, telling her story and offering some insights. Zainab will be joining us live as well. Dr. Rita, how are you today? Hi, how are you? Thank you, Helen. Oh, I'm really well, thank you. Really well. I, um, it's a... It's an emotional topic for me um, and actually quite timely because one of my best friends has stage four breast cancer. She's a good friend from Dubai and she went back to the UK and she's flown back to Dubai today. She should be on the plane right now. So she's having a break in her treatment. And I couldn't see her for a number of years because of COVID and treatment and her immune system. But she's well enough to come for a long weekend and I can't tell you how excited I am. But it has been a really tough couple of years feeling far away from a really good friend who's been going through breast cancer and it's really brought home, in honesty, something that I think an awful lot of people have lived with and lived alongside. So thank you, first of all, for all the amazing work that you and the team do um, at King's. And thank you for your time this afternoon. I know you're very busy, Dr. Rita. So I know this is very much your bread and butter and something you talk about all the time. But can you please break it down for us? What is breast cancer? What is happening in the body? Yes, uh, thank you, Helen. So it's indeed like one of the major topics in almost like most of the families. We all have friends, we all have relatives. It is the most frequent cancer in women and we are seeing more and more. Even we are seeing in younger ages. So uh, all studies and research are ongoing to try to understand the biology and why it's happening uh, more and in younger patients as well. So the breast cancer, is it, it is it is the most frequent cancer in women. As you said, like one over eight women will have it in their lifetime. It is a change in the glandular cell. It is a change in the uh, gland of the breast. 
that unfortunately will develop in some like crazy manner. And then in some cases, it will remain in the breast. In other cases, it will go outside the breast. It will start to go through the lymph nodes to the other parts of the body. So this is why we are trying, we are trying as much as we can to try to detect it before it happens. This is why this October, like all the awareness, all the campaigns emphasize on the fact that there are few steps we need to do in advance, we mm. need to do before things can happen, before cancer can happen. And we insist on multiple steps uh, for early detection, for screening. We do hear about the importance of early detection all the time and for very good reason when it comes to the effective treatment of breast cancer. But I just want to say for anyone listening who has maybe never had an examination or never examined their breasts or maybe have a family history and you're just too fearful to, to find out the truth... It is literally life-saving. So please, uh, and I know culturally it can be very difficult as well, please don't put off something that you might be fearful of because it doesn't go away just because you ignore it. Um, Exactly. You know, amazing doctors like Dr. Rita see different cases, different shapes, sizes every single day, and there's really nothing to be embarrassed about. It's a medical setting. Um, and it is it, it literally is life-saving to go in there and have an examination. And yes, best case scenario, you've got nothing to worry about. But that early detection can make a huge, huge difference. Because when we're thinking there, Dr. Rich, about, about the stages, we hear it all the time, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four. Can you explain the, about the various stages of breast cancer and what they actually mean? Yes, so... The staging is mainly once we have the breast cancer. So either it is related, depends on the size, on the lymph nodes, on multiple criteria. But before staging, what I really, really would like to insist is only, as we said, on the early detection, on the self-examination, on checking, checking with the doctor, like mainly like maybe if we can every year for the clinical exam, but the self-examination is very important. The same way we check our face, we check ourselves every morning. Every month we should give ourselves like 10, 15 minutes in order to try to check if any difference had appeared in the breast so we can quickly go to the doctor. So once if we detect things before it happens, this is stage zero. It means before it's happening, there are some high-risk issues, questions, high-risk lesions we can remove before it we come to the staging one, two, three, four. So it is zero. This is where we really need to emphasize on the screening to early detect it. Later, when the size is growing, like two centimeters, it is stage one when the lymph nodes are not detected yet. And then it goes up three, four. Stage four is when it is spreading in the body. We have lung disease, we have liver disease. So this is the higher stage. So the staging we have when we have cancer, when we have done investigation, we have done examination, and we know how what is the level of the development and the uh, spread of the disease. But main thing is detected at stage zero, which means before it becomes a cancer. 
Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We're so lucky to have stolen away from clinic Dr. Rita from King's College Hospital, Dr. Rita Saka, where she's the breast oculoplastic surgeon. And also we're speaking very soon to Zainab Ramal, one of her patients who has survived breast cancer, as we shine a light on the most common cancer in the world affecting women. The numbers are... Really quite staggering. And 2020, 2.3 million women diagnosed and 685,000 deaths globally. Um, Dr. Rita, which, which leads me to ask you about what we know about the reasons why some women get it and some women don't. What do you know about risk factors and causes? Exactly. This is a very interesting question. So we know that we have familial we have familial factors we have genetic factors related to family history this is why we always we always insist uh, to the, on the fact of uh, informing the doctor about the family history sometimes we forget or for some reason we focus on other uh, health issues and we forget to ask about family history we have genetic mutations in some genes that will put us at higher risk to develop breast cancer, ovarian cancer. So we need to mention to the doctor if we have in the family from mother's side or father's side, not only mother's side, if we have people having had breast cancer, we need to mention it to the doctor because we might need to do the investigation and we might do the blood test to check for mutations. So this is when it is hereditary. Now, when it is not hereditary, it is like related to changes in the cell. We are identifying factors that might be related to developing breast cancer. We see it everywhere. So the cigarette, the alcohol, the weight, the fat cell, sometimes when we are overweight, sometimes it doesn't mean if we smoke or if we have a cup of wine or if we have overweight that we will develop breast cancer. But we have noticed that if we work on those factors, we reduce them, Mm -hmm. we emphasize on the exercise, on the healthy diet, we might reduce the risk of developing breast cancer. Mira, um, Mira sent in a message for you, Dr. Rita. And as I said, by all means, do get in touch. If anything's on your mind, maybe you've got a bit of confusion or indeed you want an expert second opinion. Dr. Rita with us through until four o'clock today. And Mira's been in touch on the text line saying 30 years ago, when my mum went through the menopause, she was advised not to take HRT due to it being linked to cancer. She avoided it. Um, today, two of my aunties who did take it back then now have cancer in their 70s. Is there a link? Because new studies and the news say no. And this is what I've heard from many a general doctor and obgani doctor menopause specialists as well that there is no link between hrt and breast cancer what are you hearing within the medical circles dr rita yeah so this is uh, this is a very interesting debate uh, we know that in previous studies we had shown that the hrt is related to a higher risk of developing breast cancer because the breast cell is affected by the estrogen which is present in the medication. Now, the analysis are ongoing, studies are ongoing. So if it is a very uh, a very controlled type of HRT, and if we control, we are doing the mammogram regularly, the ultrasound regularly, and we are checking for anything that is changing, we might catch up things early. It's a debate. It's mm-hmm. a debate. And the schools if you move from a country to another, from a guideline to another, there 
we are against and we are safe if we do the mammogram regularly. So it's very difficult to uh, to to answer this. Uh, which side are we? We Fair. are sometimes biased by mm. the cases we see, of so course. we cannot encourage the HRT. I would say. Um, Finn is saying, um, I've had an annual mammogram for the last 15 years. Make the phone call as you cannot turn the clock back. Well said indeed. But can we talk about screening? You mentioned ultrasounds there. Finn saying she's having regular mammograms. How do you know what you should have and when for detection, Dr. Rita? So in general, the guidelines are clear. So uh, starting the age of 40, 40, we need to start to do the mammogram. So when we can, we associate the breast ultrasound to the mammogram because each exam is showing some different component of the breast. So in practical, we are associating mammogram and ultrasound on yearly basics. We will use MRI if required, by if there is anything that we need to clarify more, or if it's someone with a mutation or high-risk family, we will alternate with MRI, but not MRI is not required as a screening. Mm-hmm. So the examination also, the self-examination every month after the period, if we don't have period, first day of the month, this is a part of the screening as well. Dr. Rita staying with us this afternoon from King's College Hospital. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. It is, of course, October, which means Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And all over the region, all over the world, there are talks and workshops, events and screenings all there dedicated to educate and empower when it comes to breast cancer awareness. We're joined now by Zena Bramal to tell her story about what she's been through and, and how she is now. Zena, it's so lovely to have you with us. Thank you. Can I ask you, how, well, I'm going to talk about where it all started, but how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I mean, I've, I, you just sound so upbeat. So this this is obviously very encouraging that you've had a breast cancer diagnosis. And today we're having a lovely chat on the radio and, you know, hopefully inspiring some other people. But can you take us back then? How and when did you get that diagnosis? How old were you? I am turning 34 in nine days. Oh, my goodness. You're so young. October is my birthday. Yeah. Zainab, you're so uh, young. So when, when, when did you start to suspect that something wasn't quite right and you needed to go to the doctor? Three and a half years ago. I was around 30 at the time. And yeah, uh, like people would think like you're too young for that. No, it's not breast cancer. It can't be. But I feel like at that time, I felt like I need to keep screening. I need to keep asking. We need to keep investigating because what was happening with me wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. And um, like it started with self-examination. I had like bloody nipple discharge. And when I looked at it, I sensed that this isn't normal whatsoever. So immediately I went and I saw Dr. Rita, like during the same day. I felt like this is an alarming sign and I should not ignore it. And I could tell like Dr. Rita wanted to investigate first before giving any judgment. And like that's when we started doing the ultrasound and then um, we had to do an MRI. And then eventually the only conclusive thing was through a biopsy, which confirmed the diagnosis. 
And tell us about getting that diagnosis. What was your, I guess, prognosis at that stage? What, what news was delivered? Um, at that time, um, they had to do a surgery and then check whether the um, lymph nodes were involved or mm-hmm. not. And thankfully, they were not. But it did show that, like, there's a multifocal spread. So I had to do, like, again, an, a total mastectomy. Tell us about treatment, because we hear, you know, all sorts of different treatment options and severity, periods of time, of course, different cycles. What what did your treatment look like? You had that full mastectomy. What about chemotherapy and radiation and how did you find it? So um, in, in, my, in my case, I didn't have to go through that because it was early detected. Amazing. Good. And that's like something that I'm thankful for because otherwise it would have spread, spread to the lymph nodes and mm-hmm. other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. And um, I did have to go through hormonal therapy, which I'm currently still under, to prevent the cancer from coming back. Tell so us that means putting me in like a medically induced menopause to suppress the hormone from growing stronger and then because my my cancer was hormonal positive Mm -hmm. and there are different types of cancers Mm -hmm. but since mine does react to the hormones they had to suppress that and yes I'm 34 but I'm in menopause but if that is what I need to survive then why not Wow. Thank you for, for sharing that. I think it's so, I mean, we hear these numbers all the time, Zainab, about, you know, common most occurring cancer and, you know, one out of eight women. But to actually hear one, that one out of eight and, and what you've been through and what you're going through. And how are you feeling now? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I feel like I need to talk about it. Good. And Thank I, you. I, I don't feel like it's something <laughs> that I need to be hiding or being ashamed or whatever. I I feel like it's my duty right now to talk about it and encourage others to do their screening. And like every now and then when I hear about anyone who got diagnosed from my like close contact of uh, people, I contact them, I talk to them, I encourage them. Like this is in the end, like you need to go through this, 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 but it's going to be fine. You're going to feel this during this period of time, but later on it's going to be okay. I mean... It's, it's, it's a message that I have to share. When we say like early detection saves life, it's not just a cool. Mm-hmm. It's Z- a fact. It's something that would help. Zainab, can I ask you, for people who might have a friend who's had a diagnosis, a family member, what was helpful to you from those around you? And what was not helpful from, you know, all the way from diagnosis to treatment? What did you need at that time from, from your friends and family? I needed their support. I needed, like, sometimes you feel down and then you would want someone that you can vent to, talk to, without feeling like I'm I'm just, like, being gloomy or sad. Just, like, someone who would accept what you're talking and just encourage you. And I had a very supportive circle of friends and family who kept on supporting me. Like, for example, my kids were too young. My daughter was two years at that time. And my sister flew from from home here to stay with my kids, make sure that they are fine while I go through the surgeries. So that helps a lot. So, what know, doesn't uh, help yeah, what is doesn't help? Like, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what doesn't help, um, I mean, people who would think like what you're going through is just an experience like others. Oh, it's fine. You're just, stage one or oh it's fine you didn't undergo this or oh it's fine 
what you're feeling is just another symptom, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it helps a lot when people understand that you just need to be positive, supportive. Uh, just when you're talking to a cancer patient, quit all those negative thoughts and encourage because positive energy heals. Thank you so, so much. Positive energy. I, I love that. Zainab, it's wonderful to hear you in such good spirits today. Um, and we're going to uh, catch up now with Dr. Rita, who got you to where you are today, wishing you and the family a very healthy and happy future. And thank you for sharing that message. It is so, so valuable and it means an awful lot. Zainab, thank you. Dr. Rita, I think, as I said, you know, you've been talking about the kind of the practical medical side, but to hear Zainab telling her story um, from you know, something that just didn't feel right through to mastectomy, through a very early medically induced menopause. I think it's just so valuable. I really do to, to have uh, have these stories brought to life by people who have lived them and are living them. And I wanted to, I guess, kind of ask you about your hopes for the future of breast cancer awareness and treatment, because... As we know, the whole of October um, and there are some amazing companies out there who are really raising awareness, raising funds. Um, do you feel like there's more hope around the corner when it comes to treatment? Definitely, definitely. The, uh, the story of uh, the story of Zainab is typical about uh, early detection. She was 30. She was not yet due for screening mammograms. And yet the alarming symptoms pushed her to go to council and we could like dig and find the cancer very early. Now the biology has developed, so we can do now tests to analyze the tumor itself and detect if she will be if the chemo will be beneficial to her or not. And she was very, very, very low risk. Mm-hmm. So she did not need to chemo. So we should not mix all the, every cancer is different, every patient is different, the biology is different, and all the studies, all the research should be encouraged. Why? Because we can move forward in detecting more molecules, more medication, which can be beneficial to a big number of patients, either young or older. So definitely, definitely, we should encourage all the research and the studies and uh, raise funds to help uh, everyone to get medication. And lastly, Dr. Rita, to, as I say, all the women, but also men listening today when we're discussing breast cancer, um, what do you think we should all change or try or stop in order to decrease our chances of contracting breast cancer? Lifestyle. Lifestyle. We have a lot of... uh a lot of changes if we compare our lifestyle now to lifestyle many like 10, 20, 30 years ago. So what we can, well, there are things we can do nothing about. There is things that are hereditary or genetic or imposed, even like the climate or other imposed to us. But if we can do something about our lifestyle, about the healthy diet, about exercising, about quitting what some factors like cigarettes or alcohol that are known to be affecting this. If we can do something about it, let's do it. If we can remind, remind each other about the self-examination, about checking the doctor for any symptom, this is helpful. So all these we can, any little thing we can do about is helpful. 
Dr. Rita, thank you so, so much. And if you do have any questions or concerns, you can find Dr. Rita at King's College Hospital Dubai. If you'd like her details, drop me a message on 4001. I'd be very happy to connect you. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are talking health on the show today and rightfully so. There's been an awful lot of press both here and around the world on menopause, and I'm talking specifically female menopause, their perimenopause, and a real push of awareness about companies doing more to support their workers and really just opening up a bit of that conversation, removing the stigma. But what about the andropause? Now, in simple terms, it means the male menopause of sorts, and men do go through it in their own way, but for some It is disguised under a bit of a clumsy phrase of midlife crisis. So how does a man know if he is going through the menopause and does it affect all men? We're bringing in a brace of experts. Sharon James is a wellness coach who helps women navigate their way through the menopause and does work with companies around supporting and education. Scott Armstrong is with us. He's the founder of Mental. It's a new platform that tackles that stigma of mental health head on. Both, thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. And when I told my husband that we were talking about this today, he was like, the what? So let's start with you, Um, Scott. Do you think a lot of the men in your community, whether that is friends or people that you're meeting through the platform, are aware of andropause as a a word and this is a stage? Um, Absolutely not, no. (laughs) Uh, And I I think if you were to ask him about the male menopause, they'd again also say, well, what are you talking about? Um, But if you were then to start talking about mental health, um, then... in a kind of private one-to-one conversation, then it begins to creep in Mm -hmm. and then they begin to share about their anxieties if they're in a safe space. But it's all linked back and there's not enough conversation about it, which is one of the things I want to do. I I want to be one of the few men out there that's actually talking about this. Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge amount of kind of power in that vulnerability and sometimes it does take someone like yourself or someone in the public eye to say I am going through this I'm on a mission to address this I think what's quite hard to untangle with the male menopause is much like much like women's especially when we look at the mental health side of it is what are signs of aging identity feeling useful in the workplace and when is Mm. it chemical and hormonal and Sharon I'm I'm kind of curious when we think about the female menopause we're talking about estrogen really just going off a Mm. cliff how does that compare to what men might be going through at a similar age? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of um, different sim- uh, signs and symptoms. So men's uh, testosterone really decreases slowly. So 2%, less than 2% over a year after 30 up towards 40, then it does um, go down a little bit more. Whereas, you know, as, as women, it sort of dives off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And second of all, with the males, uh, their reproductive system doesn't stop like keep ours on does. Going. <laughs> it just keeps on going. <laughs> so they're the two different um, scenarios of it. But you know, even though the men are losing their testosterone, that's where all the challenges come in from them because they feel that they're losing their, you know, their virility, virility, their you know libido, their um, everything. So it's and that's what causes the depression, anxiety, stress, and the same with women. Um, like you've just said, it's like when women are going through menopause, their lifestyle, their home life, their work life is all just clumped into one. So we sort of don't identify. Mm -hmm. And that's the same with men. You know, Mm -hmm. they're going through this change and they've got stress of work, family, everything else. So, you know, that mental and again, nobody to talk to about it. I feel like with women, it's a kind of a cruel paradox that you hit menopause at a time where you might be at the the peak of 
your career. And with men, you know, much the same with these ideas of things being on your shoulders, thinking about paying for education, mortgages. You know, the, uh, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the pressure on, on women um, yeah. to kind of juggle it all. And I don't feel like men are kind of acknowledged as much as they should be in that conversation. And when you're looking at some of the issues that are facing men of a certain age, so let's look at kind of 40 upwards, Scott, what are some of the common themes or challenges that you're hearing time and time again? Well, the scary thing is that if you look at the suicide statistics, particularly for men aged between 40 and 49, and I hit 50 this year, I'm kind of almost going to be glad to mm-hmm. hit 50 because then I'll be out of the danger zone, which is a, yeah. It's one of the biggest killers of men. Um, and if you look at the statistics again, like men are actually in that age bracket, particularly four times more likely to kill themselves than women. Um, and again, this comes back to us not being able to talk about it. And then if you talk about the virility, I mean, I joke, I don't, I wouldn't consider myself to be particularly virile all the while, so I'm all right there. But <laughs> even we suddenly start slowing down, we've got, if you think about leadership and we think about work stresses, the higher you get up, the more you've got pressure, the mm-hmm. more you've got responsibilities. Um, we know from research just last week, I think it was a signal wellbeing research, 98% of us have got burnout. Many Scott, of us. every single expert I speak to on the show, whether it's a medical expert, you know, a, a GP, a psychiatrist, w- whatever it might be, it's Dubai is burnt out, stressed out, overwhelmed. And I personally feel like everyone should have someone to talk to. Yeah. And I think for women, a lot of it's, you know, it's going out for dinner, it's offloading, it's main, maybe saying something about your relationship or your workplace that, you know, you feel like you can do around that table. And my husband will go out for dinner or or drinks with friends and come back five hours later. And I'm like, so what was the chat? Oh, you know, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing think, revealed, I nothing shared. slightly better. But I, I mean, so. again, if you think about the things we're talking about as well, like we're talking about erectile dysfunction, we're talking about moobs, had them for a while. Yeah, a good sports bra sorts <laughs> that one out. But these are subjects that really go very much to the heart, the core of how many men see themselves so that's why it's very difficult for them to open up in front of their peers and have Mm -hmm. these conversations but we saw Paddy Pimlop I don't know if you remember it but UFC fighter went on stage after he won his title and he'd had a friend kill himself and he basically was I'd rather have my friend cry on my shoulder that go to his funeral a week later. And that was an incredibly powerful moment yeah. to see him there in the cage, really like just laying it out. And I think that that's what I mean about people taking some responsibility to say, this is what I'm going through. This is what this person's going through. And let's talk about it more. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Aging is a natural part of life. Some might say it's a privilege. And with it comes many changes, some negative, some positive, and among them, hormonal changes are inevitable. Not only do women go through something of a hormonal change, but doctors have found that men also experience some symptoms as they get older, this condition uh, called andropause in medical language. And joining us now, Sharon James, she is a consultant when it comes to dealing with menopause in women and also talking to workplaces about supporting employees. And delighted to be joined as well by Scott Armstrong. He is the founder of Mental. It's a new platform launching very soon, tackling the stigma of mental health head on in the region and beyond with a whole range of experts talking about their own lived experiences but also on hand to help people using that platform as well. You're more than welcome to get in touch by the way if you've got any questions any concerns. Um, Sharon S is asking can male menopause affect fertility? 
Uh, yes, it can. Yeah. Um, so the best thing for them to do is go to their GP um, and have a blood test to test their testosterone levels. Because with women, when you have a blood test done, they often go, well, there's no point because your your hormones can be fluctuating on a daily yeah. basis. Is that the case with men? Not, not necessarily. Okay. No. No. And would you get hormone replacement therapy for want of a better phrase uh, they they can and some men every, uh, some men are different you know some men have low testosterone naturally um so they do take testosterone um as a on a monthly basis but again it's something that they should be discussing with their gp once they find yeah, out please don't just be going to your local, yeah, local muscle some, gym yeah from big rob down there um, there's no name on this message, Scott, and I'd like to put this to you, saying, thanks for raising this. Husband is mid-40s. Over the past year or so, I feel like he showed increased signs of ageing, thinning hair on top, finding it much harder to lose weight, not sleeping, blah, blah, blah. The worst thing, though, is he seems much more grumpy than mm. he did a decade ago, more belligerent, snappy with me and the kids, even though they're generally very easy, um, less willing to try new things and more critical overall. Is this his personality or could it be related to male menopause? It could be related to male menopause but it's probably more like almost like what we call the midlife crisis to some degree we do get grumpier the more we get tired but it's probably more linked to and i'm not a doctor um but that mental health thing that we are all going through Mm -hmm. and as the stresses keep building up and there is this thing the patriarchy is terrible for women, but it's also it trapped a lot of men in roles and responsibilities and they get terrified of being failures. And it's very difficult for men to look themselves in the mirror and have honest conversations with themselves, let alone the people around them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the, the first step is actually them being honest with themselves mm-hmm. about look what's really going on in their life, inside and outside. Often it's not the person that we snap at that's the cause of the anger or the frustration it's you know follow follow the path down to what the real source of that frustration is uh, and i think that's something that men are just we haven't learned how to do and we need to talk about it more because it builds it builds it builds to the point where we'll we'll literally kill ourselves rather than talk to people about it and that's what we need to get over it's it's easier said than done though what role do you think therapy can play when it comes to helping men deal with those issues because i think for many it's a really intimidating almost like a last resort of going, I'm going to therapy, I'm going to counselling, people are going to think there's something wrong with me. Have I failed? You know, like this, yeah. there is still this huge amount of stigma to do with which we need to, Which we really we need to get past. We absolutely do. And if you think about therapy, I mean, I always think about, we're almost beginning to understand around physical health. We know that our diet should be better and this is linked to mental health and we know that we should exercise more. Sleep. S- sleep. Stress. Very, very important. Um, so in terms of the maintenance of our bodies, we at least we understand the message but we do nothing to maintain our mental health and they're completely interlinked. And I point this like you take your car and you get it serviced. You don't wait for it to break down. But the only time we confront mental health is when it breaks. Mm. And actually, I know therapists that go to therapy. They should. They do because they, they know that it's the only way to keep them on track because we are all struggling, particularly mm. now. You know, as you say, back to the burnout, we've never been working harder. There's never been more fear, toxicity, polarisation in the world when we talk about so, you know, uh, social media and all that sort of thing. And we live in a brilliant place. I know, I know. know. I wanted to ask you, Sharon, a little bit about timing because what happens if a man and a woman are married and they're both going through a menopause of sorts? That must be an interesting dynamic. 
Very much so. And funny enough, I was talking to a client yesterday and she's going through perimenopause. She has two two teenage daughters who are going through puberty. So you've got the bookend of puberty and menopause in the house and then is the is the husband just working some really long hours out of choice and then she said her husband's moody is is stressed all the time he's got anxiety and he's you know in his late is 52 53 so you've got a household there that's just having hormonal deficiencies or Mm. ups and downs and you know and it's about putting strategies in place and talking it's about talking about each other's um feelings emotions and what they're going through so that the household could be you know calmer and that's you know what I do I I, we put some strategies in place so they don't kill each other basically Mm -hmm. but it's funny that that that's just been talked about yesterday for anyone that's listening today who's either ringing some bells with you know maybe to do with their husband or in themselves what is your port port of call do you go to your family doctor first could you go and straight see a therapist or an endocrinologist to have your hormones tested what do you tend to recommend um, they, they can do all of those. You can, you know, come to a coach, for, for example, like myself, or go to the doctor. Or, you know, the first protocol for me is actually identifying the challenges, like Scott's just said, and then having a discussion within the family or the close friends. Um, and maybe there are some um, strategies you can put in place there. And then from then on, if that's not working, then go to a coach, GP. Um, psychologist. Yeah. I was saying great to have this subject tackled. Loved the show with mentality earlier too. We've got the guys from mentality joining us after four o'clock today and actually linked perhaps this message, no name on it, saying, I'm sure I'll be berated for this, but surely the guys are symptomatic of a mar- marital type Stockholm syndrome. By the time we hit our 40s, the square peg has been forced round. <laughs> Scott. What say you, sir? Well, thank you for that. <laughs> we are talking infidelity after three o'clock. <laughs> it's uh, hard. I think I think identity does play a huge part oh, in it. Oh, it absolutely does. Whether it is not pursuing hobbies that, you know, have maybe gone by the wayside, feeling financial pressures. I know when my dad even retired, um, that was a massive issue um, because... All of a sudden, he was around all the time. Yeah. And my mum was like, he's never questioned this before. And yeah. here he is. You know, he went from being useful and productive to not having that in his life. And I'm so glad that he was able to address that because he then, as you're saying, in terms of finding coping, he started doing a bit of work here and there. And I don't say this lightly. My parents have got an incredibly strong marriage, but I think him getting out of the house saved it for yeah. another couple of decades at least. Yeah. Um Scott, um, a couple of messages asking about the platform. So you're going live in a couple of days. What is the website? Uh, well, it's mental, M-E-N-T-L dot space, uh, S-P-A-C-E. Um, and the reason why we're called mental is we just want to call it for what it is, um, tackle mental health head on. So we're not called Fluffy Brain Sparkle. <laughs> there is actually a website called Fluffy Brain Sparkle. I am not so surprised. We, could, we couldn't get that URL. Uh, and it's, uh, to start with, I'm a storyteller. I've been a storyteller all my life since I was 16 years old. And I've... I'm a passionate believer in the power of human stories to change people, you know, and there is actually behavioral science around this that we 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 relate to people that we either respect, look up to or or believe they're just like us. Mm-hmm. And that's we need more people telling those stories so people can look up and go, oh, I'm not alone because we're not alone. We're all going through this in one phase or another. Mm-hmm. Well said indeed. And thank you so much for kind of 
putting that out there. And we'd love to have you back to tackle some of the other subjects that are coming up through mainly men, to be honest, because I feel like, as you said, this is an underrepresented group um, in mass media when it comes to mental health. So we'd love to support you there. And if anyone does want that website, I will send it over. It's going live in a couple of days. And Sharon, for anyone that's looking for a bit of support around menopause or indeed a company listening today who thinks they could be doing better to support their workforce, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Yep, they can jump on my website, SharonJamesCoaching.com or um, email me at hi, SharonJamesCoaching.com. You're brilliant. Both. Thank Thank you so, so much. I'm sure we're going to come back to this topic again as the conversations continue and hopefully more stigma being removed. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Over the past few years, the health and wellness industry has exploded. We've seen a dramatic surge in companies shifting their focus to wellness programs for their employees. Many people starting to investigate things they'd never even heard of five years ago. And it's estimated that the global wellness market now is worth more than $1.5 trillion. Is this a result of the aftermath of COVID? Are we seeing just becoming more aware of the importance of our health over material wealth? Well, we are exploring it now with two people who've been helping helping us in the wellness space for many years, the founders of Seva Experience. We've got Ada and Shadi joining us live to lift the lid a little bit about some of the trends and what's happening down there in Jamiro One. And I just have to say, first off, it's, and don't blush, but what you've created there is such a beautiful space, such a special place. It is this oasis in the city where you don't feel like you're in Dubai at all, which I know sounds like a weird compliment, but sometimes you need that (laughs) thank Um, you Shadi tell us a little bit about I guess the trends you know when did you open Saver and what kind of change have you seen when it comes to awareness and the type of inquiries you've been getting so Seva is the upbranding of uh, Life and One which um, we started in 2014 and um, interesting to say that Seva was uh, uh, brought to life three days before the pandemic lockdown mm-hmm. in March 2020. So that was by itself. Um, we always joked that it was uh, a glitch that we created <laughs> on this planet. That <laughs> Thanks, resulted. <guys. laughs> and so it took us a while for the identity to express itself until late uh, 2020. And um, in a way, it was also a reflection and a response to the community that we started with uh, in the earlier years and we realized that the growth and the awareness and the expansion of of, of um, interest in mm-hmm. this field um, challenged us in a way that we needed to up the game and to um, out of respect to our community to um, to really um, grow in what we are offering so um, in a way um, uh, seva represents um, many aspects uh, we we, we we, we call it an experience platform. There is a reason why we chose experience. We don't call it a healing center. We don't call it a wellness center, et cetera, et cetera, because um, in a way you, you, you heal yourself, you, you go through the journey through experience, not through a secondhand experience, not mm-hmm. through something I tell you, you need to experience it. Otherwise, it's just a story in many aspects. And at the same time, we are not here to fix um, what's broken or what's not broken, all these are perceptions. We mm-hmm. are here to create movement mm-hmm. and movement is life. So in a way, we tap into the experience through the basic touch points, through food, through the cafe that we have, um, through normal casual shopping, but we bring awareness and education into how to make a choice 
why to make this choice and so on when you acquire something. And at the same time, we are here to experience our body, our mind, our heart, um, our breath through the offerings and the services we offer. Um, and have you, have you noticed over that time a change in the clientele? Are there about people that are coming through the door? Yeah, definitely. The new generation, especially, um, I think Gen Z. Gen Z knows everything. I love them. I know um, most of the employees, employers don't like Gen Z, but I love them. They just, they were raised with this information. They know the crystals, they know the meditations, um, they know the brands, uh, they know the methods. They have so many, so many tools. Um, yes, they are not very dedicated. Um, they don't like to get up and do something because in the end, all these tools and methods are just to give us a tool to help our day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be internal. You get up and you do something, you meditate, you jump, jump rope. I mean, whatever is, if, um, you know, keeping you together. Um, but I love them. I learned so much from them. That's a really interesting point, actually, because when you think historically, and I'm thinking about historically as in when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to do yoga, for me, you would see a notice on the pin board at the village hall. Or if you wanted to look at alternative therapies or medicines, you'd be in the library getting a book. And now we've got so much more access to information. We know we've seen wellness on TikTok absolutely explode. We've got people who are teaching, you know, free resources online. And I think that kind of interest has been really sparked. And yeah, if it's Genzo kind of leading the way. Um, what kind of things do you think people are struggling with or suffering from right now in the UAE, Shadi? When, what, what are people looking to solve or heal or explore right now? I think the major problem is information overload. Mm. If you come to find a solution for what you think is a problem, um, good luck making a decision because of the many choices. So the decision making is not easy anymore. And um, this information overload is natural outcome of the biggest commodity on the planet today, which is um, humans' attention. When you come today and look at once upon a time when you were seeking knowledge, you would go and read books. And uh, nowadays, if the uh, result is more than five bullet points, you skip. <laughs> if the Google search you know? goes onto a second page, yeah. it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, algorithms, <laughs> the algorithms are telling us today, if you're going to post something on social media, it's five seconds, mm -hmm. you know. So, so, so how, how are you going to address something that is deep within the human spirit. I also think we're very quick to, I guess, distract ourselves from discomfort and, you know, so-called negative feelings why, mm. you know, shopping, eating, drinking, you know, whatever, whatever that might be, consuming. And I think what you guys do so well is offering that space to actually just be and <laughs> connect and feed yourself. You know, just I think it, it's this rare spot of peace yeah. I think, and I think that's why it's, it really has resonated with so many people. Um, Omar saying, Seva is an amazing experience. You've got some really, you've built a really lovely community, I Thank suppose you. is what I'm asking. But I wanted to ask you, um, Edda, about costs, because I feel mm. like wellness is a bit of a privilege, you know, to have mm. the time, the money, the headspace to look to explore or address something. For anyone that would love to build more into their life, but perhaps don't have the means, what do you tend to suggest? Um... We do offer, for example, free gatherings, free talks, free events, just to think about this. I personally teach only donation-based classes, and donation-based means you don't have to donate. Mm -hmm. And um, we are trying to always provide something, 
and it is welcome. Like everybody is welcome to this. Um, but is wellness is a privilege? <clears throat> I disagree. In a city like Dubai, when everybody is have, have the funds to buy something or champagne brunch, it's it's your choice. Are you choosing that or are you choosing a workshop that is gonna you know give you a tool? Mm -hmm. I believe it's about choices. And also when we check the prices around the world, especially when you are working with people who has more than 30 years of experience, that's also, I mean, when you go to a doctor who has a couple of, you know, things in before their name, yeah. you know that you st they studied like 20 years, so you pay differently. So we also work with facilitators that way. So they also have a certain... Yeah, credential yeah, experience. Ex exactly. Shadi, what's coming up then over the coming weeks, uh, days, months, even that you're particularly excited about introducing Dubai to? Um, a lot is happening on daily basis, um, but I would say the highlight uh, is the return of our uh, family constellation therapist, Laura Gita. She's going to be visiting us next week. Um, and um, just to highlight, uh, family constellation is one of the therapy methods that was uh, founded by uh, Bert Hellinger, um, a great figure um, in the field. And it talks about the the dynamics between family members and elements and memories and incidents and how these um, stories from the past that seem to be far away are basically the um, the program with which we perceive and experience life today. So it's a profound tool to unlock and open the gateways for the future and the present moment by understanding the past. Well, thank you so much for coming in. I'm, I'm really lovely thank to have a bit of a catch up with you, to be honest, and all the very best over the coming weeks and months. I think you, as I said, offer such a valuable place and space um, to meet other people, meet mm -hmm. people globally, mm -hmm. um, meet people right here in the UAE. And you do a cracking breakfast. So, I mean, I, I personally <laughs> couldn't be happier. I'm having people going, how do you spell it? It's S-E-V-A, experience, and it's Jamira one. Shadi Edda, thank you thank so, you so much. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.